Welcome back into the Lions 24-7 podcast. We're in the first week of December, and in case you hadn't noticed, that is a very busy time to be covering college football. The bowl has been revealed for Penn State. They'll be heading down to Atlanta for the Peach Bowl, matchup between the number 10 Nittany Lions and the number 11 Ole Miss Rebels will take place on December 30th at noon down in Atlanta. Our Lions 24-7 sports coverage team will be making the trip there the day after Christmas. We'll be camped out throughout that week, so bringing you a bunch. Of course, there's a lot to learn about the Nittany Lions and Ole Miss along the way before we get to that matchup in the next few weeks. Keeping tabs on opt-outs, the transfer portal, and what that might mean for the Nittany Lions, not just here in player availability for the postseason matchup, but for what their roster is going to look like in 2024. We're also gathering more information on the addition of the new offensive coordinator, Andy Kotelnicki, who we covered in great detail in our last two episodes of the podcast. In case you missed kind of a bonus one that we snuck your way on Friday, uh, we had uh, Michael Swain from the 24-7 Sports Kansas site on to give us a lot of intel on what Kotal Nicky accomplished out there in Lawrence and what he's going to bring to town here in Happy Valley. We also set the stage a bit with Tyler Calvaruso looking ahead to the postseason transfer portal period, which opened on Monday. We'll talk about how things are shaping out thus far in the portal. But first, we bring in Daniel Gallon and Mark Brennan. We do also have an opt-out to discuss. Chop Robinson announcing his decision for the Peach Bowl and for 2024 just moments ago before we sat down to record. But Gentlemen, let's bring it in with the fact that we know Penn State's 13th post uh, 13th matchup. We know the destination and the opponent. And, Mark, it's going to take them back to the New Year's Six Bowl realm. It's the uh, fifth time in the last eight years that they will finish off the season in a New Year's, New Year's Six Bowl matchup and presents a chance to take on a 10-2 SEC squad led by Lane Kiffin in Ole Miss. What is your initial reaction to this opportunity and this matchup presented for Penn State? Thank goodness it's not Liberty. I mean, I just, you know, I'm looking at that and I'm seeing these Oregon fans and with all due respect to Liberty, seriously, I mean, they're, they're a 15 and a half point underdog. Now I just looked it up and, um, you know, I, I just think for this Penn state team, regardless of who opts out, you know, it really needs an opportunity to prove itself uh, against, you know, this caliber of opponent. You know, I, I guess you can say that, that Iowa is kind of a legit top 15, 20 team, uh, although the way that game went and, and the way they played against the better teams on their schedule, you know, I, I just don't know. Um, but the opportunity for Penn State to 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 play a top ten caliber program, even though Ole Miss is number eleven, I think most people would agree it's right. It's kind of right there. Uh, I think is important for this team after the way the season went, where it lost the two games everybody figured it might lose. Uh, here's an opportunity to prove yourself. And then the opportunity to play in the Peach Bowl, you know, Penn State, I've been fortunate enough to cover a lot of bowls. I've been fortunate enough to cover a lot of major bowls. And to be able to go somewhere that Penn State's never been, I think is really good for the for the program. And it's going to be fun for the media. So uh, look forward to it. Uh, glad they drew an SEC opponent. Uh, there, there was some scuttlebutt that, you know, before things broke the way they did on championship uh, Saturday, that it could be Georgia. That might have been a handful for Penn State, uh, but I think this is a really not, nice opportunity for James Franklin and whoever decides to play in the game. That created quite a stir. Uh, you had posted a screenshot of that projected bowl matchup from Jerry Palm, I think it was, Daniel, and that got a lot of reaction on Saturday night across social media. By the time we got through whatever that show was, the three-hour, four hours of it, uh, and finally found out who Penn State was playing, 
Um, what did you make of that matchup, Daniel? Because alongside Georgia there for a moment, Missouri was a team out of the SEC that had popped up on some projections, maybe Penn State squaring off against them somewhere, to see it be revealed as Ole Miss. And as I mentioned, a 10-2 team right there like Penn State trying to ensure that it finishes this campaign inside the top 10 of national rankings. What do you see as a forecast against Ole Miss? Yeah, I, I think I had sort of a, a similar reaction to Mark in that I was excited that it was a, a major opponent. And that's partially you know, selfishly for us you know, to, to see uh, a quality game, but also for the fans, for the players, um, you know, for the program, just to keep interest around this team and to maybe have a game where you can really take something away from it or be in a situation where people want to take something away um, from it going into the offseason. I, I think that that's something that that's pretty big that comes out of this matchup. But on it's it's really interesting. You look at these two teams and you know, number 10, number 11, and they're both in kind of similar points uh, in, in the pecking order nationally. You look at what Penn State did, did this year. They lose their two games to Michigan and Ohio State. You look at Ole Miss, they lost their two games to Alabama and Georgia. These are two teams that are kind of in that next tier. When you talk about the playoff expansion, these are the types of programs that are going to be able to be in that top 12, in that mix. Um, and I think it should make for a, a pretty interesting game. Um, Lane Kiffin on Sunday said that he doesn't expect Ole Miss to have too many opt-outs given uh, the draft grades on some of their guys and the age of some of their top players. Um, and then you look at Penn State, their first opt-out is, is Chop Robinson uh, earlier Tuesday, but uh, James Franklin, he, he said that the conversations were still ongoing, but we saw last year for the Rose Bowl that Penn State was able to go into that game with a pretty full deck. Um, so I, I think that if we get to the end of December, both these teams are pretty much intact, whether that's draft or the portal. I mean, it has the potential to be one of the more, uh, I think, interesting New Year Six games. And the, the, the personalities there for both coaches, Lane Kiffin in his own way, James Franklin in his own way, a nationally known leaders of their programs. We saw Lane Kiffin showing exactly how he's a bit different on social media Tuesday, uh, quote tweeting Chop Robinson's announcement, wishing him luck uh, and, and, and congratulations for his career. Lane Kiffin actually during the joint press conference that we took place, that took part in on, on Sunday evening, had said he hoped James Franklin was going to bring some news of opt-outs, particularly on defense, into that uh, press conference setting. That didn't happen, but uh, as you said, Lane Kiffin, sounding optimistic that his team will be in shape. We'll talk about the subject of, of opt-outs momentarily, uh, but Mark, this is being billed you know, right off the bat by, by the president, CEO of, of the Peach Bowl as you know, a battle of a, a top offense against a top defense, and you know, certainly Penn State is at the top or near the top of, of, of most notable defensive rankings coming off the 2023 regular season, but what, what stood out to me a little bit is Penn State's actually averaging more points uh, per game than Ole Miss when you factor in all 12 that they've played thus far, Penn State at 37 points per game, Ole Miss at just about 35 points per game. You look at total yardage, Ole Miss is inside the top 20 for both scoring and for yardage. Penn State's just barely inside the top 60 for yardage. But I don't think it's quite that, that much of a, of a battle between an elite offense and an elite defense because I think that there's also Penn State's offense, which finished on a bit of a high note, and, and, and they're not going to you know show up. And I don't think they're, they're a no-show offense by any means. And then I think with this Ole Miss defense, you know, how are they going to be able to handle their own part of the bargain? So 
interesting to see it build that way, but I don't necessarily know if the details kind of bore that out. Well, I think that guy's a salesman, right? I mean, so he's, he's, it seems like a genuinely nice guy. And, you know, they were, you know, before the bowl, very proactive in, in, in reaching out to Penn State beat writers. So I, I think one really good thing is that the Peach Bowl really wanted Penn State. I mean, there's no question about it. But as I look at these two teams, and I haven't dived into it as deep as deeply as probably uh, some people named Daniel have, uh, and even you, Tyler, but it looks to me like these are two teams that are very evenly matched in the sense that they're just outside of that college football playoff realm. You know, Ole Miss very much like Penn State lost to the two teams that everybody figured it was going to lose to, albeit both on the road, and really struggled offensively against Alabama and Georgia, you know, scoring 10 against Alabama and then, you know, 17 against Georgia when it gave up 52 points to Georgia. So, I don't know that you could build it as great offense versus great defense, maybe more as teams that are still struggling and fighting and clawing and biting to try to make take that next step. And I think it's important for, for both of these teams. I think a win in this game, you know, doesn't necessarily propel you to that next level. But it, it kind of sets you a little bit apart from from all of the other teams that are fighting and scratching and trying to get where everybody wants to be. And, you know, obviously it's going to be a different uh, situation next year. You know, had, had this been a 12-team playoff, um, you know, Penn State clearly would have been in. I think there are some questions on whether Ole Miss would have been. But it's going to be a different situation next year. But I think in this last year of the four-team, these are two of those teams that are kind of just outside, kind of nibbling around the edges. And I think that, to me, is the more uh, kind of apt way to, to uh, kind of describe it. We're going to break down Ole Miss in greater detail later on this show. We have our Rebels yeah. insider uh, from the 24-7 Sports Network to talk about that. But but just to, to go over some points here, uh, Ole Miss in, in pass defense, 60th nationally. Ole Miss in, in rush defense, 67th nationally. Um, obviously, Penn State coming off of its strongest overall offensive performance in the regular season finale against Michigan State. A different kind of test awaits against, uh, against this team. But, Daniel, uh, Ole Miss, uh, they have been in two – uh, New Year's Six Bowls since 2016. Penn State has been in five New Year's Six Bowls since 2016. Lane Kiffin undoubtedly sees this as a chance to, to tack on that 11th win. Uh, he noted that it would be the first 11-win season in Ole Miss program history. They've played a lot of football down in Oxford. Uh, so obviously there's something on the line here for them. James Franklin discussed the importance and, and appreciation of getting to this point yet again where you're among a cluster of football teams that, that have reached that New Year's Six status. You're not quite where you want to be, as he referenced on Sunday night, uh, but he expressed some appreciation for where they are. Penn State, as of Monday night, according to Caesar Sportsbook, a four-point favorite in the matchup, Daniel. Do you see any potential edge uh, just right off the cuff as we look at this? I think it's it's going to be interesting to see how Penn State comes through with the opt-outs. Um, we last year we talked about how they were able to keep things together, and there was a lot of motivation from players like Sean Clifford, like Jair Brown, who wanted to leave the program much better than they found it, or in Clifford's case, return it to where it was when he started, you know, a decade earlier. Um, but I, I think that for this team, I think you kind of have to gauge the motivation a little bit because I think that the way that Lane Kiffin is is framing it for his team is that the opportunity for that 11th win, not expecting to have a lot of opt-outs, I think that that kind of shows where, where his head is at and 
maybe where that teams will be coming in. Um, and we talked about it earlier this season about, you know, for Penn State, getting to that Rose Bowl last year was really a reward um, for what they did this season. This year, it's kind of a, a you know, a step to the side. You know, they stayed at the plateau. They didn't take that next step. Um, but I do think that James Franklin has the pulse of this team. We saw him bounce back from both the Ohio State um, and the Michigan losses. You saw the team bounce back from having its offensive coordinator fired. Um, I, I do think that he's in the position to push all of the right buttons and, and have this team motivated and, and ready to go. So I think from that perspective, things will be um, you know, in really good shape. But I, I think that the, the Penn State defense is really kind of where you go to as, as the edge. I think that that's probably the single best unit um, on the field. Um, excluding special teams. <laughs> I don't know what, what the Ole Miss special team situation is, but I think that that Penn State defense is, is kind of where you start, and I think that that's where Penn State uh, really gets its edge. Um, you know, the framing of it is a little, a little bit interesting uh, in terms of offense versus defense, and then when you actually look at the numbers, but I think that that kind of speaks to Lane Kiffin's reputation, Ole Miss's reputation uh, over these past couple of years, and what we know that uh, they're capable of doing and, and scheming up on on the big stage. But I think in terms of the edge, you just look at this this Penn State defense right now, you know, even without Chop Robinson, um, I think that this is a very, very solid unit. Um, and I think they should match up well. I mean, I'm excited to see what this looks like with Quinchon Judkins, uh, the Ole Miss running back, trying to run into this defense. Um, we, we, we saw Penn State do a pretty good job on the ground this year. So I think that in terms of edges, um, I, I think from where we stand right now, I mean, that's the, the easiest place to start. And with things hanging in the air, obviously you're taking a, a formidable piece of that a defense away, Chop Robinson right now. We're wondering if the coordinator makes it to this matchup and Manny Diaz, who has some options on the table as we gather, uh, but just kind of tells a story about how it goes at this time of the year. And Mark, something we noted last year leading up to the Rose Bowl and certainly after was the springboard opportunity for a, a, an ascending team. Now a lot of those players that we pointed to as part of the reason for that ascension, they're going to be going from sophomore to junior year in 2024. And then the urgency really picks up because after junior year, all bets are off in terms of that nucleus of parts that Penn State has. We know there's going to be players moving on after this matchup, whether they hit the portal, head to the NFL draft. There might be some surprising decisions, but the ability to go beat Ole Miss, finish inside the top 10, get to 11 and 2, and then enter the offseason. What do you see from that possibility? I think it depends on which player. I mean, I think a guy like Drew Aller was pretty much what we expected he would be this year. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I think if you look at one thing I said when we were voting on our MVPs is if you step away from the game by game of Drew Aller and look at his overall body of work with the 23 or 24 touchdowns and one interception and his completion rate and just about everything, I mean, very good numbers for a first year starter. But you look at a lot of those other second year players, Catron Allen, I think, would fall into that same category where, you know, he was what we thought he would be. But, you know, some of the other young players on this team. I don't know that they were necessarily at the level that some of us thought they would be, starting with Nick Singleton. Uh, you know, I think an argument could be made for Abdul Carter not making the explosive plays that a lot of us thought he would he would make, even though he was kind of well represented on the All Big Ten teams. So I, I think for those types of players, you know, uh, Amari Evans. I mean, some of these younger guys who we were thinking might really, you know, take that next step. 
and really didn't do it. Well, now you have another opportunity. And if Nick Singleton could stack Michigan State with another quality performance like that, that's really big for him to take into the into the offseason. Uh, if Abdul Carter can can come through with another strong game, I think that that's really good. If some of the young wide receivers could actually step up who didn't get it done consistently throughout the season, I think that's big for them. So that's the way I'm kind of looking at it. And then from Drew Aller's perspective, you know, be what you've been, but maybe elevate it just a little bit more even because you have this opportunity to take a step back. We talked about during the season with Drew Aller, he said how important the bye week was for him because it gave him an opportunity to not be in the grind, you know, week after week after week. He was able to take a step back and kind of self-reflect. Well, imagine the time he has now uh, to do that. Uh, and and given what he went through toward the end of the season with the change of coordinator, you know, he handled that very well, but that could not have been easy for him. So I think that the ability to take a step back and take a deep breath, I'm anxious to see what Drew Aller and all these young guys are able to do in this bowl game. Penn State has been favored in 11 out of 13 games, the two that they were underdogs for. They lost those matchups, Ohio State and Michigan. On the flip side, Ole Miss, uh, this is the fourth time they've been an underdog. They lost two of them, Alabama, Georgia. They did beat LSU along the way as a slight underdog against the Tigers. So heading into this matchup, a couple teams that, that are used to being the favorite um, and something's got to give in, in this one. And, and in terms of looking for how this one's going to maybe evolve in the next few weeks, look at what we just learned. Chop Robinson, no longer part of the equation. Uh, a feared edge rush, edge rusher for this Penn State defense, going back to his transfer in from Maryland last year, from Game One uh, last year against Purdue, where he came up with the play at the end of that matchup, applied pressure to his last game against Michigan State on Black Friday. Obviously, he made his presence known. Daniel, you had the story up at lines247.com. Uh, this is one that we obviously knew we had to be paying attention to it when you have a first round forecast applied to this young man since the off season. But we did wonder. Missing much of that Ohio State matchup, missing a couple ensuing games. Where was his head at? Would this maybe be a chance to go out and produce some more film against a really high-quality opponent? And based on apparently the feedback that they've gotten, I'd imagine, from the NFL level and conversations that have taken place among Chop Robinson and his support group, uh, the the outcome is he is done with his college career and he's going to get ready for the pros. Definitely. I think that Chop Robinson was in one of those interesting points where you could make the case either way for him to from the play in the Peach Bowl, for him to not. You could even make a good case for him coming back next year. You can make a case against him going now um, while, while his stock is where, where it's at. Um, but I think that this was something that uh, we were probably expecting a little bit. I mean, I think when last year ended and you saw his name suddenly appear, um, on on all of those mock drafts that you know back in you know April and and whatnot, you kind of were like, oh okay, like you you could kind of connect the dots and and put the trajectory together. Um, but I, I think that with what he showed this year, I, I think that um, you know he really made an impression, and I think that he's at a at the point where you know he's going to test well uh, at the combine, you know he's going to test well at pro day, um, and you look at the position that he plays at, at edge rusher. Um, you need those those types of traits. And so I, I think that he'll turn into a very, very appealing prospect. Um, it's going to I think it'll be a thing where you know, he's not kind of that stereotypical six, five long uh, type edge rusher that that you see kind of be in vogue right now. But he's just such an explosive athlete that I think that you know, the right team will find him 
put him in a spot where he can succeed. And I think that, you know, he feels confident about that, um, about that. But I, I think that with what he did over these past two years, you could see the traits um, that are going to translate over to the next level. Um, and we saw him add some versatility too. You know, that ability to rush from the inside this year um, that he showed in that Prowler package, especially against Iowa, I, I think that that's something that you shouldn't underrate in terms of putting things on film uh, and, and going to the next level because it's a, edge rusher is a position where in the NFL, in college, you can never have too many of those guys. If you can rotate them through, keep them fresh, those are the types of players that can really wreck a game, impact a game. We saw Chop Robinson do it here during his time at Penn State, and I don't think it's too much of a stretch to, to see him being able to do that at the next level in the future. Nine and a half sacks in two seasons with Penn State. It feels like a lot more. I feel <laughs> like he was uh, maybe because the pressure and just his ability to get to the backfield, that just his presence has been amplified over these last couple seasons. But like, something else to keep in mind with the trajectory of him as he's evaluated by pro scouts and as you try to determine how he fits into an NFL defensive scheme. This is a guy who was evaluated by 24-7 Sports as a five-star linebacker type prospect edge rusher maryland utilized him in a stand-up role at the second level uh, during that freshman campaign kind of a hybrid situation and then he shifted focus to defensive end on a full-time scale just last year and we're talking about last august so not much time has gone by you what 15 16 months between when chop robinson starts to really sink his, sink his teeth into the defensive end position and to where he is now as a projected potential first round pick and a first-team All-Big Ten caliber player. So you wonder what NFL talent evaluators are going to see there and what that kind of versatility in the front seven could mean for his fortunes as that draft board comes together for 2024. We'll circle back to Chop Robinson down the line. But right now, Mark, the, the focus becomes for Penn State. Who's next up? And we've already seen this play out, a couple matchups where Chop Robinson couldn't go coming off that injury against Ohio State. We know the obvious answer is the former five-star Deny Dennis Sutton, who fits into that category as a year two player that we were just discussing. He has taken a step forward here as a sophomore. He's gone from a kind of a, a special package, uh, fourth, fifth guy last year to what feels like a shared starter role between Chop Robinson and Deza Isaac and Deny Dennis Sutton at times. And his reps were scaled back in November a bit as Chop Robinson got into the groove of things. But you start there, Mark, and then you work your way through some, some questions. Uh, Amin Vanover and, and the way he finished the season, he also the way he started the season, but sidelined and, and, and getting involved a little bit late. Does his uh, uh, role really get a major spike here in the postseason? Soraya Fisher's out there. Jameel Lyons to me is really interesting because he's got these three or four weeks of bowl prep work and the, Philly, the Philadelphia freshman has really shined on the practice field this year. And then just kind of a wild card out here because he's Mr. Bowl game, Smith Vilbert. Uh, he has not been suited up at any point for, for Penn State during a game, but he has shown up and been at every single one of these practices that we've seen since August. And remember, his injury occurred during the spring. And James Franklin told us way back in August that he was out for the season. But with Smith Vilbert, his name has popped up week in, week out on that availability report as being out. And so just something to keep in mind. Remember, he didn't play at all last year for different reasons, but then he showed up and was available for the Rose Bowl. And you got to go back to the Outback Bowl when he had three sacks, his only career three sacks against Arkansas, as the last time uh, we really saw Smith Vilbert get extended run in a matchup. So, Mark, with all that on the table at defensive end, uh, this is a position that feels to be well sit well spot well situated, I should say, um, dealing with Chop Robinson's uh, absence the next few weeks. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is going to be whether Adisa Isaac decides to play, right? I mean, yeah. if he decides to play, then I think you're going to be in, in, in good shape, with all due respect to Chop. And one other thing I'd throw in about Chop, you wonder where the injury during the season, which seemed like it was concussion or something, but you wonder what kind of perspective that gave him in terms of, you know, is it really worth it if I have a chance to be a first-round draft pick? But, you know, going to, to Smith-Vilbert, I was going to throw that out there, but I think the difference with Smith-Vilbert this year is while we've seen him at every single practice, he's not been suited up. Yep. So, I mean, it would be a long way for him to, to, to go from not practicing at all all season to diving into it now. Uh, you know, I wish for his sake that he would be able to, uh, but I just I think that's a stretch. But I think the the fact that you had guys who were able to play significant football, uh, you know, Zariah Fisher to me is a guy who I think doesn't quite get enough credit. I like what what we've seen from him. I mean, Vanover now this puts the onus on him uh, being healthy, and then Lions obviously all we heard about him all year from the coaching staff and from other players is how mature this kid is. So maybe this is another guy where, when I was talking about, you know, those second year players, maybe this is an opportunity for a first year player to step up and, and do something. So I think of all the positions where you could lose somebody, uh, if everybody else plays, I think they're going to be in a good spot here, but, but that's a big, if we, we're, we're still waiting to hear about Adisa because I think he's a guy who really improved his draft stock this year you know came back and now is he projecting as a first rounder I think that might be a little bit of a stretch but you know if if he projects as a second rounder you know then he's really got a decision to make so it's going to be interesting these next few days you know you as much as we would like to see these guys play as much as I would like to see Chop Robinson play one more game you completely understand where they're coming from because this is their livelihood. And, you know, the cool thing is once they're done, we can become fans. And so now I just hope that Chop's able to put everything together, uh, getting ready for the draft, because I think we all have a pretty good feel for what he's all about and what he can do. You know, that quick first step, you know, whether that he uses that as a D end or an outside linebacker in a in 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 a three four, there somebody's gonna find a way, as Daniel said, to put that to use. But in terms of who's going to who's still available, I think provided everybody else comes back, I think they're gonna be okay there. Deion Barnes is going to figure things out here in the next few weeks. Uh, along with the Diza Isaac, some other names that we're monitoring, certainly Olu Fashionu projected top 10 overall NFL draft pick. A lot of those guys don't play in bowl games these days unless they're in the college football playoff. But obviously, Olu came back for a whole other season when a lot of people figured he wouldn't. Um, Kaitlin King, uh, you've got Johnny Dixon, Daquan Hardy, all three of those guys at cornerback who, to some degree, got all Big Ten recognition. Uh, they bear monitoring. I think Curtis Jacobs, a senior linebacker. And then both those tight ends, uh, Tyler Warren, Theo Johnson. Not saying we're hearing anything about any of these guys leaning towards not playing in the bowl matchup, but I just think you have to consider these names because of how long they've been on campus, what might be available to them next year professionally. And some of these guys may be back with the program in 2024, but we're still waiting to see if they'll be with the team in Atlanta for this Peach Bowl matchup. And that's just the reality of college football here in 2023 come December. Um, beyond that, uh, James Franklin gave us some feedback on a few things on Sunday night. Aside from the Peach Bowl, it was our first chance to hear from him since Andy Kotelnicki was added as the offensive coordinator. That became official on Friday. So, Daniel, what stood out to you from the initial 
perspective that James Franklin provided. We're expecting to hear from Andy Kotelnicki himself here a little bit later in the month as we get ready for the bowl matchup. But James Franklin talked about the motivation to go get him. We'll talk about how that got done and maybe what that required from leadership. But Franklin talking about collaboration, track record here, explosive plays, and just sounds like he's really selling this as a complete package that fit the need he was searching for. Yeah, I think the one thing that that stood out from what James Franklin said was talking about what each of them needed. That he said that they that he and Andy Kotelnicki were very transparent uh, with each other about what they wanted, what they needed. Um, I think what their goals are, and that was something that I think helped them uh, along in this process. And something that I thought that was pretty interesting for. For James Franklin to say, um, and then the other thing that stood out was just kind of the the collaborative part um, that James Franklin thinks that Andy Kotelnicki is someone who will fit in with this staff. Um, and Franklin, you know, he said that they have a good staff, and I think that's something that we've talked about too. That Franklin has has really built something uh, you know, these past couple of years, and so finding the right coordinator who can come in, fit in with with the coaches who are already here, um, you know use what they can bring to the table and kind of put it all together is something that's pretty important. Um, so I, I think that it was, I think James Franklin offered a, a little bit of insight um, into it. I am curious to hear from Andy Kotelnicki's side later this month, um, how he kind of saw everything come together and what he is looking for by coming to Penn state. And James Franklin mentioned it and we've talked about it too. You're leaving someone that you've worked with for so long in Lance Leopold at some pretty, you know, kind of college football outposts. You're talking about Division Three at Wisconsin Whitewater. You're talking about Buffalo in the MAC, Kansas in the Big Twelve. Um, to be along with, be along for the ride with someone for that long and be tied to them. I mean, it's a it's a pretty big jump um, to leave and, and come to a place like Penn State. But it seems like you know, James, James Franklin said that they've had a ton of conversations these past couple of weeks, um, and so I think that they've kind of found in each other um, something that can elevate this program and elevate each other. We'll be right back on the Lions 24-7 podcast. And we heard from Michael Swain, as I mentioned before, on the last podcast that dropped Friday, just breaking down some of the motivating factors that he thought were in place for Coda Linky. And he talked about the the allure of, of reaching the stage that Penn State can provide and, and the power of the Penn State brand. I think sometimes people here within the Nittany Lions community can forget about that, what's in front of their own nose in terms of, of these competitive coaching conversations, but also that ability to be a head coach someday and, and this to be a major proving ground him and we did hear from James Franklin that Lance Leipold uh, and Andy Kotelnicki spent some time here on campus. Uh, you know the coaches collaborate sometimes during the offseason, so it sounds like there were some some study sessions among these two staffs. And and James Franklin, as we know, keeps a long deep notebook of names that he might be interested in adding to his staff someday. And when this popped up, Andy Kotelnicki soared to the top, it seems, uh, and getting this one done. And, and in that regard, uh, Audrey Snyder of The Athletic reported the, the, the terms of this contract in terms of annual salary and $1.6 million to start. And then by year four, when this contract as structured finishes out, uh, Snyder reporting $2 million in season four with this program. From what we understand, Kotelnicki was making $1.1 million annually at Kansas. Uh, the uh, contract and renegotiation that he had last year when some other Power 5 programs came knocking on his door created a $700,000 buyout 
this is big money we're talking about for a guy who's not your head coach, Mark Brennan. And this is exactly the kind of arms race conversation that James Franklin engages in with us over the course of year by year by year and how he needs to see his team keep up with those they're expected to compete against. He had some words on, on this subject as well in reviewing how it all went down with Andy Kotelnicki. He's running out of things that he can say that 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 Penn State is not giving him what he needs to 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 be a, a playoff team, right? I mean, I think this speaks to in what he's been saying all along uh, over the last year and a half, two years, is he's talking about alignment, and by alignment he means Neely Bendapudi, he means Pat Kraft, he means. Uh, you know, everybody in the administration understanding what he needs, what he thinks he needs. I mean, I'm just going to put it out that way uh, to be successful. And this is a, just a great example that they are buying into that vision. Uh, when you're paying that much money for a buyout and for a coordinator, and when you're making this sort of change in a season, uh, that's speaking to uh, significant alignment uh, I would say, and a, and a significant investment into the program. So, you know, I, I I agree with James that Penn State was not measuring up to a bunch of other schools, to the elite schools, when it came to these sorts of things. But this is it, it, this drives some Penn Penn State old old school Penn State fans nuts that they're paying this much money. But this is what it, it's come down to. If you want to compete. You're going to have to pay this much money. We know uh, for a fact that Penn State was not the only suitor here. You know, there there were other head there were head coaching opportunities in play. Now, how much of that's coming from an agent for leverage, whatever? But clearly, a lot of people want this guy. And if it wasn't this year, it would probably probably be next year. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think when you talk about alignment, he's getting the alignment that he wants, and now it's going to be incumbent upon him to show those results when you're playing the Ohio States in Michigan's not that you're going to be playing each of them every year now, but, or the, now, you know, the Oregon's or the, the Washington's or UCLA and USC. So uh, he's getting the things he needs. Now it's going to be incumbent on him to prove that those investments were worthwhile. A couple of things just to follow up there. James Franklin talks a lot about uh, it's, it's imperative that Penn state does not allow coaches to leave for lateral moves that they, that they're not, you know, don't let coaches like Manny Diaz get wooed over to be a defensive coordinator somewhere else head coaching opportunities. That's a different conversation. What James Franklin doesn't say is that they also want to have the ammunition to go up to 90% of college football facilities, knock on the door, walk into that office and present a better offer than a coach can can receive from that campus, from that university to stick around. And that's what they did here. I mean, there's other things that go into play with Andy Kotelnicki's decision, but let's face it, going from 1.1 million and you can chart your course to $2 million for calling offensive plays at the college football level, uh, that is a significant opportunity to take some steps forward for you, for your family, and, and really generationally as well. So we'll keep tabs on, on, on Manny Diaz next because that's the next part of the situation. If if Nicky is worth $1.6 million for what he did the last few years at Kansas and prior to that at Buffalo, what is Manny Diaz worth for what he just did the last couple of years here under your roof with Penn State? That's a big question. 
We'll see if that gets sorted out between now and December 30th when that kickoff comes. Before we turn our attention to Ole Miss and start to break them down with the Rebels Insider, I want to focus on the transfer portal because we're going to get into that in a large way with Tyler Calvaruso in our second episode this week. We will break down everything we're hearing, the names that have surfaced, uh, the, the, and, and, and really what we're looking at from a positional standpoint as the priorities have become more apparent in the last couple of days and will continue to be more apparent in the coming days. But guys, we know that at least two players have elected to enter the transfer portal from the 2023 Penn State roster. Both of those names surfaced on Monday morning. Monday is when that transfer portal period for the postseason opened across the college football landscape. So whether or not your coach was fired, whether or not you're a grad transfer, you can hit that transfer portal. Of course, there's going to be repercussions. Alex Paquetta, a punter who was on scholarship, year two player, redshirt freshman, entered the portal. He was the first name that showed up there. And then Christian Driver, converted cornerback, spent this year at wide receiver, also a member of the 2022 Penn State recruiting class, has hit the portal. And, and Daniel, I'll just present those couple to you. Uh, Alex Paquetta did not travel with this team this year. That, that kind of signifies where he was in the pecking order at punter. A bit disappointing when you look at the investment of a scholarship at punter and, and really speaks to the importance of Riley Thompson and getting him from FAU and, and being a, an all Big Ten caliber punter here this year. But also Christian Driver. This is maybe the, the first of many dominoes to fall in the wide receiver room as Marcus Higgins did not recruit any of these players. And you specifically focus on the 2022 wide receiver class. Five players involved there once Christian Driver moved from cornerback to wide receiver late last year and into 2023. And collectively, those five players caught 11 total passes during the 2023 regular season. You've got Caden Saunders getting some run out there over the course of the year. Omari Evans got some opportunities more so late. And then you've got Tyler Johnson and Anthony Ivey, who's really been kind of tucked away on the scout team. Christian Driver popped up, got a little bit of run against Michigan State. He was not used with any kind of frequency on offense, and now he is exploring another opportunity. Daniel, what do you have for us on these two roster departures? Don't forget about seven-time D-Squad player of the week, Jace Tuddy, either. The, the walk-on cornerback from Stroudsburg. Um, but no, I, I mean, I think you look at Baquetta and Driver, and this is kind of the, I guess, the type of player you expect to see pop up in the portal. Someone who's young, still has eligibility left, but is kind of buried on the depth chart. Um, and they want to go you know, somewhere where they can find playing time. Um, I think that the punter situation will be interesting to see what happens, um, especially when it comes to Riley Thompson and whether or not he's around next year. Uh, that's something that we're still kind of in wait and see mode. Um, I know that Gabe Wosu did a lot of work to be able to be that number two punter uh, and win that kickoff specialist job, which helped get him onto the travel roster. Um, and then you look at driver. I mean, the wide receiver room is going to be in the spotlight uh, this offseason for Penn State. I think that there's going to be a lot of people uh, looking at it, who's coming, who's going, what that means for next year. Um, and, and this is the first one to go. I mean, it's it's kind of unfortunate when you think about someone who came here, was at one position, then switched over to another one. So you didn't have those full two years to really kind of get going. Um, at one to see, because we've seen at both of these positions that if you can play, Terry Smith is going to put you on the field. Uh, if you can play, Penn State probably could have used you at wide receiver this year. Um, and I think there were some good signs from driver. I mean, he wasn't wearing scout team numbers. He was on the travel roster. Um, we saw him working both inside and outside. So there was something there. But um, I think that this is just kind of the start. I mean, I think that Penn State, given how this year went, given how last year went, 
We weren't really expecting to see a mass exodus of guys pop up on day one. Um, but I think for these two, it's kind of like, okay, like you kind of see who, what kind of players is leaving. And I think it kind of, uh, I don't want to say sets the tone, but it's kind of, it, it gets you started and you're kind of like, okay, you, know, you can kind of see it. You can kind of understand it. And now you move forward. And remember last year, uh, Devon Townley, defensive lineman, was one of the first players from Penn State, if not the first, to enter the transfer portal. He ultimately ended up returning to the roster come January, but that's the only time that has happened in like the last five years. Very rare to see a player end up circling back to the roster. And Christian Driver, uh, I know, I know. Daniel knows this as a Packers fan, but the son of uh, Donald Driver, former All-Pro with the Packers, we had seen those two working together after a, a practice session at some point this season. Uh, you wonder if Christian Driver really focuses on, on receiver moving forward. He's a guy who was the top 24-7 athlete uh, in, in the uh, evaluation of 24-7 sports. Guys, appreciate the perspective. We're going to jump over to, to Ole Miss now, but uh, a lot brewing behind the scenes right now for Penn State football and a lot happening at lines247.com. Appreciate you, Mark and Daniel. Look forward to the scouting report. <laughs> All right, let's jump into it now and, and learn more about the Ole Miss Rebels who come into this matchup like Penn State at 10-2. and two. They are number 11 in the final college football playoff ranking. And to give us more details on this squad that Penn State will see in just a few weeks, Tyler Comis from 24-7 Sports covers the Rebels. Welcome to the show. Hey, Tyler, how are you doing? Right, we're doing well. Happy to have another Tyler on board. Our recruiting guy, Tyler Calvaruso, is usually with us, so we got to keep the numbers up around here. Um, obviously, like you, we were sitting around for, for a week or so after the last game. You had a Thanksgiving game to cover. We had a Black Friday yeah. game to cover. You know, waiting, you know, reading the speculation, trying to follow the tea leaves. Before Sunday, after, Sunday afternoon revealed it would be Penn State versus Ole Miss in the Peach Bowl, what were some of the other possibilities you were hearing, and how much did it feel like a New Year's Six Bowl was actually locked in until Ole Miss got the word? You know, Tyler, that, that's a great question. Um, and, and the feeling was certainly surprising around the whole, you know, Oxford community, Ole Miss. I think most of the projections, we, we, we you know, constantly put out projections and stuff like that. And, you know, for several weeks in a row, it was Citrus Bowl we were seeing and, and maybe a possibility of a Cotton Bowl. But on Sunday, we were fully expecting Citrus Bowl uh, on our side. And I know Ole Miss as well. They um, they actually went when the bowl game was announced. Um, they sent out the ticket information and whatnot to their emailing list. And and I had gotten a hold of one of the emails and I saw that even in the email itself, it said cheese, um, cheese it Citrus Bowl Orlando, Florida mixed with the Peach Bowl. So there was definitely some surprise there, no doubt. So I, I believe that ends up being Iowa and Tennessee. So you avoid uh, watching the Hawkeyes play football. We, we already we already saw that happen. Hey, much respect to their defense, but you get a much different matchup here and obviously against the team that is inside the top 10. So what is this viewed as in Oxford going from the, the Citrus Bowl in Orlando um, against maybe an Iowa in that much in that matchup to Atlanta with Penn State? where it feels like you win this game, you got a bit of a punctuation mark to the end of your season. Absolutely. And I think that's that's kind of the the vibe there. They're just trying to make a statement win. Um, you know, ultimately, they, they had some playoff aspirations right right up until they, you know, <laughs> got taken to the woodshed by Georgia a few weeks ago. But um, they're, they're just focused on getting that 11th win. They've never done that in program history. So that's kind of 
where the mentality is. They just want to, like you said, make make that exclamation mark to really end their season and build off the momentum they've already created. They're, it's their second New Year's Six Bowl game appearance in three years. So hopefully, you know, next year is going to be looked at as kind of a playoff or bust scenario for sure. Yeah, two two and three years after uh, not going to one since 2015, and obviously you had some some issues off the field with this program that it cost them some abilities to go to the postseason and field a, a very uh, competitive team for some time. But Lane Kiffin comes in in 2020, you know, a COVID year, of course, but five and five that year after a four and eight season. They go to ten and three in 2021 with a loss in the Sugar Bowl, finishing out that year. Eight and four last season, they end up losing to Texas Tech in the Texas Bowl. And now, as you said, a chance to get to 11 wins for the first time in team history. We've been talking about motivation from Penn State's perspective, um, you know, after that second loss, really. And we've been talking about it now as we're learning about opt-outs. Chop Robinson, the first player on either side of this matchup to announce his opt-out. And that's a first-team All-Big Ten defender now out of the equation for Penn State. Those two things, motivation, opt-outs, what's your sense for where Ole Miss stands on both of them? So... uh in that Zoom call on Sunday, that introductory press conference to the bowl game, I asked Lane Kiffin if there were any opt-outs. He, he said no, it wasn't that um, type of year where they had, you know, a super high-level prospect like maybe Penn State does have a couple of those guys on defense. Um, so we're, we're not anticipating any opt-outs. Um, one of their starting receivers, Dayton Wade, he declared for the NFL draft, but he, he said he will be playing in that Peach Bowl game, which is which is huge for that offense. And and motivational wise, I think, you know, to, sorry to repeat myself, but that, that 11th win is really what's kind of holding them there. And, and Lane's bowl, bowl game record with Ole Miss one and two, you know, hasn't really won that big postseason game yet. Um, some might even argue that he hasn't even won that big game yet. And and this win over a top 10 Penn State and a New Year's on the New Year's six bowl game stage would certainly put some doubts to rest as far as that goes. So you mentioned um, Lane Kiffin. Is he winning the big game with Ole Miss? And we're hearing that with James Franklin here at Penn State. James Franklin's been doing it a lot longer here. He's gone to four uh, previous New Year's Six Bowls. But you you just bringing that up kind of piques my interest because I look at Ole Miss's schedule here to get to 10-2. and two. They beat Tulane in week two. Obviously, Tulane gets to just about the finish line as the favorite to represent the group of six in the New Year's Six playoffs. They couldn't take care of business in their conference championship last Saturday. But along the way, as a slight underdog, uh, uh, Ole Miss beats LSU 55-49. to And then the two matchups that you're obviously going to circle throughout the season, Alabama, a 24-10 to loss in Tuscaloosa, and then against Georgia in Athens, a 52-17 to loss on November 11th. That was their second loss on November 11th. Here in Happy Valley, we saw Penn State go down against Michigan on November 11th to pick up their second loss. And it came against Ohio State and Michigan, uh, the two schools that we all knew that the Nittany Lions would have to get through every single step of the way this year. Did it feel like that a little bit at Ole Miss where they largely handled the business they were expected to handle, but it felt like in the two prove-it games that, that they fell shy, or were there other prove-it games, and am I shortchanging that six-point win over LSU? Um, honestly, I think the feeling is that Ole Miss, honestly, that Alabama game really was a game they were expecting to win. I think from just even an outsider's perspective, um, a lot of Ole Miss fans were expecting them to win that game, and honestly – a big difference between this team, this 2023 team, and Lane Kiffin's previous Ole Miss teams is is uh, Pete Golding, the defensive coordinator. He's 
he completely put them in a position to win that game. The offense was kind of lackluster. So that was viewed a little bit more than a disappointment than the blowout loss um, in Athens, Georgia, where they knew it was it was 45 stars and four stars versus, you know, about half of that. Um, but the LSU win was honestly just where it was in the schedule. I think I think a lot of people might not be um, giving that win as much credit as it deserves, especially when they lost in Tuscaloosa the week before. And, and last year when, when that happened, this team really got derailed because they felt they should have won that game as well. Um, so to see them kind of rebound in the, in the fashion they did in the fourth quarter rally against LSU at home, I think that that's probably got to be their biggest win right, right up there with Texas A&M late in the year. Um, but a lot were, were really wondering if Ole Miss would be able to be in the right headspace for that game following the Alabama loss. I do want to ask about the, this Ole Miss offense because the, uh, you heard it. The, the the CEO of the Peach Bowl was really you know, framing this one as a as a strong offense against a strong defense, and the st- statistics certainly back that up for Penn State. Although I will point out, as I did earlier on the show, Penn State actually averaging more points per game than Ole Miss through the regular season. But much like Penn State, you know, some of those bigger point totals came against lesser opponents, and the two most important matchups, you know, Penn State was searching for, you know, searching for double-digit point totals deep into those games against Michigan and Ohio State. So I, I look at a twenty-four to ten loss against Ole Miss and a fifty-two uh, against Alabama and a fifty-two to seventeen loss against Georgia, and you say that that felt like the offense was holding them back a bit. What are the question marks about that unit? heading into a matchup against what I'd imagine is considered to be one of, if not the best defense on the schedule thus far that Ole Miss has faced. Absolutely. I mean, the skill talent, I feel like Ole Miss has some pretty top-notch athletes at wide receiver, running back, quarterback, et cetera. Those two losses really, especially that Alabama game as well, really fell on the shoulders of the offensive line, in my opinion. And even coming into this matchup there, and it's not the same case as it was uh, two months ago. They're, they were healthy back then, but now they're down. They're starting right tackle and Michael, Michael Pettis, who suffered a bone break uh, just before, you know, in game week going into Georgia, actually. So that that threw some challenges right then and there. And then in the first drive of that Georgia game, that that replacement left tackle, because they had their initial starting left tackle moved to right tackle, their backup left tackle went down with an injury and he hasn't played since. So it, it's a, it's getting very thin and, and it's the most glaring issue on the offense right now. And, and uh, as, as you kind of alluded to earlier, it's, it's tremendous news for the Ole Miss offensive line and offense that Chop Robinson won't be going up against them. Can you tell us about some of those playmakers on, on offense, Jackson Dart, the quarterback, just shy of 3000 yards on the season, 20 touchdowns, uh, five interceptions. Uh, Kinshawn Judkins has gone over 100 yards in a bunch of these games. He's over 1,000 on the season, 15 touchdowns on the year. And then it looks like they spread the ball a little bit through the air. Three different Ole Miss players, uh, right around 50 catches on the season, three different guys, over 700 receiving yards. So uh, focus in on some of those individuals and tell us what it looks like when it all comes together. Yeah, let's start off with the quarterback, Jackson Dart. He um, He had to come in and win the job back after last year. He had a little bit of a shaky first rookie year in the SEC after transferring from USC. And and a lot of those weapons, uh, talk about Trey Harris, Jordan Watkins, Dayton Wade, those guys have been tremendous for his growth this year, especially Trey Harris. He's, he's kind of the superstar in that um, wide receiver room. And then a little bit of a guy who doesn't show up in the stat sheet that much, uh, tight end Caden Priestcorn. 
he's, you know, he's been huge. He's like having an extra lineman on the field. Um, he's that good at run blocking. And when he catches the ball, it's he's ripping off, you know, 20 yard receptions, 15 yard receptions consistently. So he's been a big um, help for Jackson Darts to develop much improved development this season. He's kind of like his security blanket. And then the running back duo, Quinshawn Judkins and Ulysses Bentley, that's been really beneficial to the offense. And, and the offense is at its best, of course, when they're firing on all cylinders, especially in that run game. And, and when those two are going, Judkins is more the every down power back kind of guy. Bentley's kind of the spark of fresh air, if you will, and a little more elusive and a little bit more of a pass catcher in the offense. Yeah, I'm looking at that those receiving numbers again. Four guys have 20-plus catches and an average per catch of at least 14, including the tight end, Priestcorn, as you mentioned, at 15.6. When this offense uh, looks to get rolling in Atlanta, should we look for the passing attack to try to set up the run game, or is it vice versa with Ole Miss? That's a good question. I mean, Ole Miss, ever since they hired Lane Kiffin in 2020, they kind of have this um, perception of, high-flying offense, score from far, this and that, you know, about throwing the ball deep. But really, it's the run game that sets up the pass game because once this team becomes one-dimensional in the pass game, they be, they start to become predictable and easy kind of to shut down. Even even the offense, um, when the run game was struggling in their, on Thanksgiving night, they, they only threw for 96 total yards and ended up winning by two touchdowns. Um, so it's, it's definitely a run-first mentality defensively well what exactly do you think Penn State's dealing with how, how did the Rebels finish out the regular season and you talked about an injury issue at offensive tackle are there any others that we need to be aware of on the defensive side of the ball on the defensive side of the ball they're they're pretty healthy and um you know they started off the year pretty uh, on fire honestly except that LSU game but even then they showed some signs of promises with some late fourth quarter stops um and that's kind of been the theme of this defense and these uh, tight, narrow wins that Ole Miss has been able to pull out. Um, it's usually about – it's not about how the defense starts. It's about how they finish. Um, but in recent weeks, I would say one one concerning uh, lingering issue is the run defense. Right now, that's – they've been outgained in, in a couple games in a row at this point now and just struggle, I guess, to prevent running backs from fighting for two extra yards. And and individually, I guess, kind of like I asked on offense, uh, when it is going right for the defense, who are the game wreckers that could show up in Atlanta? Game wreckers when it's going right. Um, safety, Dejon Anthony, he's been a playmaker for these guys. Um, another safety, first-year transfer, John Saunders Jr. Um, but their they're three, their trio on the defensive line is, is kind of the guys that stand out and help this defense go, especially in the pass rush. Cedric Johnson, J.J. Pegues, defensive tackle, and Jared Ivey. Those guys um, could be could be one of the guys, or if not all three, that help wreck the game or game wreckers, I guess. Johnson and Ivey, both with five and a half sacks, leading the way for Ole Miss. It looks like six guys uh, are over three sacks on the season, so they've been spreading it out a little bit there. Um, special teams, anything that we need to be aware of? It's one of those matchups when you look at the, the early betting line where a play on special teams could tip the scales in the favor of the winner. Um, positives, negatives, what do we need to know? Um, somewhere in the middle, I guess we can call it. Um, their punt returner, Jordan Watkins, he's – He's been slowly getting back from a hand injury he suffered um, in their bye week, and he's still been catching punts with 
you know, whether it was one hand in a club a few weeks ago. Um, so I guess that's one thing to watch out for. And another one is their kicker, Caden Davis. He's got a leg, man. He, um, he already has a 50-yard kick under his belt um, in the two-lane game, which proved to be massive. Um, so he's one. He's got he's got all the range in the world, honestly. Davis, fifteen of twenty on the season, and as you said, he got five conversions from beyond forty with that long of fifty-six. Um, and and going back to my availability, just because I want to circle back offensively, anything beyond that 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 missing tackle that that could be a storyline that you're going to be tracking throughout this month in terms of whether a guy's going to go or not, or if he's definitely not going to go. Honestly, no, they're uh, pretty healthy on offense. Besides that, uh, one player I will say. Um, Zachary Franklin. I don't know um, if you guys know of him or um, heard what his deal was, but he has been no longer practicing with the team. And and he was, you know, he came in as one of the biggest transfers at his position uh, to Ole Miss. And when you insert him, a guy like that in the Lane Kiffin offense, you you expect a lot of things. But he had a knee scope um, going into August, and he he never found the field during fall camp, which was huge. He ended up returning for Bama, and he's kind of been healthy ever since, if you will. But he's never really found his flow in the offense, and he's played in four games, and he's hoping to preserve a red shirt for next year. We we envision him. He's not going to play in the Peach Bowl. We don't, we, we're pretty certain on, and, and we don't envision him uh, being at Ole Miss for his final year either next year. Interesting, a bit of a missed opportunity there for both parties. Is if I recall correctly, he was the uh, the active leading FBS receptions uh, leader, uh, you know, making his way over to Ole Miss uh, from Texas San Antonio. So uh, still seemed to, seemed to have some depth there at wide receiver based on the production. But appreciate that note because, like many of our listeners out there, yeah, you know, we're playing catch up. We've only known the matchup since Sunday, so. We are here to return the favor for you. Uh, whatever you need from us in the coming weeks, I think we'll work to get you or one of your colleagues on uh, with us when we get closer to this matchup, kind of honing on some final thoughts, some final predictions after a few weeks of bowl practices and figuring out what the whole opt-out deal means. But, uh, Tyler, yeah. we appreciate your perspective here early on and uh, look forward to learning more about Ole Miss and the Rebels through your coverage in the 24-7 Sports Network. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Tyler. Really appreciate it. All right, good stuff from Tyler Comis, who covers uh, the Ole Miss Rebels for 24-7 Sports. And again, I don't think this will be the last time that you hear from him on the Lions 24-7 podcast uh, leading up to that December 30th kickoff. That's going to do it for this first episode of this first week of December 2023. Big thanks to Tyler. Before him, Mark Brennan and Daniel Gallen. You'll hear from my other colleague at 20, Lions247.com and Tyler Calvaruso on our next episode of this podcast. We will go headfirst dive into the transfer portal learn what the Nittany Lions are doing from a strategy standpoint, where the offers are going out, and what visits have already been lined up as college veterans are coming to Happy Valley, going to take a closer look at team facilities, learn a little bit more about things, and we may see additions to that 2024 projected roster before this team actually finishes out its 2023 season. Uh, for now, stepping aside, one other spoiler I'll put in for our next episode. We're going to have a guest from the 2024 Nittany Lions recruiting class that's about to sign in a matter of weeks, and it's a good one. So we look forward to having him here on the show. That'll be next time. For now, stepping aside, I'm Tyler Donahue. This has been the Lions 24-7 Podcast.